series, a Netflix series. Oh, at the there was David, Prince of Wales, and his two Harry sons. And yeah, and David had a name badge on, and the cameraman oh, Gabby Knight, who I've worked together with them for like twenty years, says, "What idiot thought it was a good idea to give David Attenborough a name badge? Is there one person in the world, you know, who doesn't need a name badge?" <laughs> in the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Hello and welcome back to Trees A Crowd and to this, the second part of my interview with Chris Watson. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend you go back, but if you have, here you go, you're in for a treat. Hold on. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh I won a commission from the Gerwood Trust and the Forestry Commission along with the producer friend Ian Pate uh-huh. to um, put a raven sound installation into Kilda Forest because I'd recorded a huge roost of ravens 2,000 ravens a year or so earlier in a place called Newborough Warren in Anglesey on Anglesey and I knew there was very few ravens in Kilda and I was interested in the whole folklore of ravens. Mm-hmm. You know, Odin's birds. Odin, the raven god. And I was in Iceland, and I went to the Sagas Museum in Reykjavik and saw this fantastic woodcut of Odin with two ravens on his shoulders communicating with him, Hugin and Munin. And they were his eyes and ears. And every day... Odin would send his ravens out into the world and they'd come back in the evening, fly back to the halls of Valhalla, perch on Odin's shoulders and tell him what they'd seen and heard. And I was really interested by this because when I'd recorded this raven roost, I'd left the microphone there for five nights and got them coming back every night. Uh-huh. 2,000 ravens uh, right over the microphones, right through the night... They were still communicating. They were still having these sort of murmured conversations with each other. And quite often, certainly in the natural world, you know, with everything from plants to animals, the folklore was sort of rooted in fact. And I could hear the idea of these birds having conversations with each other, very intrigued, because they're highly intelligent birds. So I proposed this raven installation called Rafen, which is the old Norse for raven, which is on a matter peak, Rafen, Rafen. And we did it just here in Stonehof. So we arranged uh, with a friend of mine, Tony Meyer, who's Professor of Sound at the University of Surrey. We put a 20-channel ambisonic sound system in the forest canopy to a place where I'm taking you. And bust people out. It was on for three nights, 90 people a night. And you were met at Stonehof Village Hall and you were assigned a guide, so 15 people to one guide, uh-huh. who were my kids and, and some of their friends. I mean, well, kids, sort of in the mid-20s. Sure. Um, and the, the audience was brought along this path. This is the Walks Burn, which has got otters in it. And they were, it was in October when ravens roost. So they were bussed out here at um, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They met at the hall, given a cup of tea, and then assigned a guide. And on the way out, 
It's about um, just under a mile. They were told the story of Kielder Forest. Um, they were told something of the natural history of ravens mm -hmm. and the fact that there aren't many here and that this piece is celebrating the eventual return because they were persecuted by gamekeepers mercilessly on the borders for years like other birds of prey and but now they're slowly starting to return so the piece was you know trying to celebrate the anticipated return of these birds and the guide walks you along here towards sunset in October because that's when ravens start to gather and at this point the guide well just a bit further down actually there's a little bridge I can tell you the rest of the story so the idea was the sound installation started as soon as you started the walk sure so you come past this point now the sound of the walks burn as you walk parallel to the water in October of course the rest of the forest fairly quiet a few crows was that a prerequisite for the thing just so that the artificial or pre-recorded I should say the sound of the ravens didn't affect the native inhabitants yeah no we made sure there were no ravens here to disturb when you got to this point the guide would stop you and say you know the installation is beyond here it was still light by then mm -hmm. this small stone Tiny bridge is a portal into another place it's a portal into the halls of Valhalla because when I came and looked I saw these columns you know I thought this would be perfect so the guide said when we get when we cross this bridge there's no more conversation there's no more explanation you experience the work sure. and so people were walked in and you can see there's some tree stumps cut we'll go in in a moment so you sat down stood up or laid down sat with a group of friends and there were speakers in the trees up here. And then as the light fell, the birds, the sound of the birds started to return. And the birds came in from that end. Over 40 minutes, 2,000 birds came to roost overhead. And then it went quiet. And by then it was completely dark because it followed the pattern of ravens. Uh -huh. So when the ravens had finished roosting, it was 5.30 and completely black. There was a a minute's pause and then the um, invigilators would put the torches on and people were led out the forest another way so that was the piece how long was it it was just over 40 minutes okay. and it was on um, which is about the time it was real time you know the time the birds take to roost 40 45 minutes in october when they do roost so in order so people get an experience it was on, on for three nights 90 people a night and people came from Cornwall up here to do it. It was. Well, I would have come. It worked really well. <laughs> I was really pleased with it. We'll go into the space. So this is this is the bridge. This is the bridge. So we're now walking into Valhalla. To another place. And there was for sort of people with limited mobility. There was a minibus. Because the idea was this walk in was almost a mile. Uh -huh. But then the fact is, if you go that, that way, there were coaches. Yeah, on a uh, sort of a a metal road and so people with limited mobility came in that way and could be taken down the track into it so it was and this was the wooden trust and no the forestry commission it's the forestry commission and the Jerwood Jerwood trust uh -huh. and it was a, they put an open call out for, for pieces in the forest and so 
I, um, you know, I proposed this sound installation. So it's actually been harvested a bit since it was here. But they, they cut some of the stumps. So the piece was from here to that path uh -huh. there. So about 50 metres wide and about 150 metres long. And so people would walk in here. And this is the centre of the piece. So it spanned from here to the burn and then up and down here. And we had this array of speakers, which you couldn't see. All the technology was hidden. We had a you know silent film truck generator uh -huh. a long way down there, and the cables were all buried, and the speakers were all camouflaged, so you couldn't see any technology. Sounds and incredible. of course it went dark, so by the end of it, it was pitch black. It worked really well. When you recorded the Ravens initially... Um, did you have much? Did you see them at all? Like, were you oh yeah, yeah. I, I rigged the microphone a bit like what we've done, but I went out the mid-afternoon because it was a forestry plantation there in, uh, in on Anglesey. I went out in the afternoon and rigged a microphone underneath the centre of the roost, an oh. ambisonic microphone, big um, sort of multi-channel microphone setup and um, ran a cable out of the forest about 250 metres so the birds had come back and you know, wouldn't be disturbing them and I left it there for several nights so I could get them arriving on different evenings and departing on different mornings and I used the, all those recordings to compose the piece I'm hoping to uh, take it to Oslo to the outskirts of Oslo of course, the Norwegians have special affinity, yeah. But they're totemic birds. You know, they were, for the Vikings, the ravens would take the eyes of the fallen Vikings and it was with that that they carried the spirits up to Valhalla. So that was, that was one of the achievements. Is that something that's always intrigued you, the mythology behind the, the recordings you make? Or? Yeah, I think so. Well, yeah, or the... The folklore behind them, I mean, you learn so much from it anyway, because a lot of it, as I said, is actually, you know, there's a lot of truth in things like that. So I'm interested in it, and it's a good way of, because I often work with people local to environments, you know, you can learn a lot from what, you know, like we were discussing earlier, from what you discovered as a child. And Do you think you have to, I mean, I, what we were talking about earlier about being a child and taking things for granted... Do you think it helps being uh, a non-native Northumbrian coming to this place or going and listening to, to environments elsewhere? If it's just your home environment, do you think it's particularly hard to refocus your attentions afresh? Well, it's easy to ignore, isn't it? Because it's the normal, you know, it's the usual place. And so unless you take the trouble to investigate it. Which is interesting. I mean, when I do talks at schools, I often say to kids... You know, if you want to experience some of the best, most exotic wildlife sounds in the world, put your head out of your bedroom window four <laughs> o'clock in the morning. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to fly for ten hours and uh, go to somewhere tropical, and you just get the most amazing experiences. You know, in a way that we've done this morning. Mm. I mean, I think in this on our latitudes, 50, 55 degrees north, I've had the privilege of travelling the world. We've got the best dawn chorus in the world, without a doubt. 
know, because it's it's all that energy compressed into a two and a half, three month period. It's not like the tropics where it evolves it's year constant. round. It's yeah. very laid back because of our seasons and our place on the western edge of Europe. We get this remarkable density of song. And, well, the variety of landscape in general is something that I've always loved about this country. Yeah, you're you don't right. have to go yeah. far before the countryside changes and subsequently the inhabitants therein. Yeah, sea cliffs to heathland, yeah. Forests to moorland, yeah. It's been one of the you're joys right. of making this podcast so far and actually getting out of the London studio and coming up to Northumbria or across to Norfolk or down to Cornwall and Devon next week. And just That's great. It's, yeah. it's a real joy. Yeah. Yeah, you get a window into not only other people's lives, but parts of the world. I mean, I knew, didn't know anything about this place when I moved up here, but I made... I mean, the first thing I did was get a map out. What's interesting about this place, where we are now, is that this is a man-made forest, so it wasn't here 70 years ago. It was moorland and uh, rough grassland and marsh and bog um, but if you look at the map it was littered with place names like Bloody Bush Murder Clough Hangman's Rock sure. which belied you know, the sort of peace and tranquility now belies what this place was like because we're in the borders and in the borders in those times centuries ago lived the border reavers I don't know if you know anything about them. These, I don't know. This collection of... It was, they, they were clans, but they weren't Scottish, they weren't English. They didn't really care about that. The Armstrongs. And they were... They controlled this area with the sword. They were violent people. It was violent times. Um, and they decided the laws. There's, a, there's a, a hill not far from here called the Peel Stone. And that's where they used to go and decide the laws, because laws made in London or Edinburgh meant nothing to them. And so these people controlled their own landscape. And they were violent. If you, and if you didn't comply, if you were visited by the border reavers, you were bereaved. Okay. Because they turned up, killed everybody and took everything, and then set fire to your house. Sounds like nice people. (laughs) (laughs) If you weren't on their side. Blackmail, black rent comes from their terminology. So it was, and if you look at the, the map now, there's evidence of, of what those times and places must be like. It's fantastic looking back at the names of places and trying to, it's often just guesswork trying to work out where it could have come from and the, the debates over what it was. Yeah. There's in the New Forest, there are so many interesting names that some of which are quite funny now the nearest place to where I grew up is called Sandy Balls right yeah which I think yeah, is yeah. old Saxon terminology that's been bastardised over the years uh, but causes a, uh, a child growing up in the area yeah, much yeah. amusement well I, I, I was looking at the map originally to find out because quite often animals mark locations and I found them I was looking to record uh, black grouse uh-huh. large grouse which are very rare now if you look on the map, rather like sandy balls, there's places up here marked Cock Play. Yeah, well, we've got Brockenhurst Black, near us, so that's the Black, badger, Black yeah. Cock Edge. And so, traditionally, those animals were always there. That's the reason why I started scanning did the map. Did you find the them? Map. I did, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
it weighed much reduced numbers. Yeah, so it's a really good clue. And I was interested at the time as well. I'd, I was, uh, I'd been reading things like John Hillaby walking through Britain and Alfred Watkins, the old straight track, and became convinced that, you know, read about ley, this is in the 1980s, sort of discovered ley lines. I was convinced that there's sort of this kind of sense of spirit in the landscape. So when did this fascination start for you? I think I've always had it, you know, I was a childhood, my parents would, you know, first drag me out into Derbyshire on walks and I became more and more in tune to being out in the countryside environment. And then I had this strange mix when I got a tape recorder of locations and sound and then music. But I always, the antidote for being in a studio or always inside were, you know, like many of us, for going outside but then started to take some of the technology with me to, to make recordings of what I was hearing. So you grew up in Sheffield? Yeah. And was music... I mean, you said you were in a band, obviously. What was it about Sheffield that was so inspirational? I mean, it's right there on the edge of the countryside, right into the peaks. Yeah. It was just that time, and I was just, you know, I hung out with like-minded people, and... Uh, interested in similar things sort of arts, culture, film, music parties you know, <laughs> um, everything you know, what's not to like and it, some of it well a lot of it stayed with me and, and the people that I was around so we you know music was a always was a, a very good form of escapism for working class people you know like myself so it was a great it was not seen as a great escape, but it was, it was something that we were all passionate about. Uh-huh. There's a wonderful parallel, I've always thought, between the natural world and music, which is that it's accessible to pretty much anyone. Yeah. Like, if you can sing well or not well, you can make music, and if you can take yourself outside, you can be a part of the natural world. And it seems like there are... Uh, a gift for anyone that's want, willing to take it. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm convinced that all our music across all our cultures, from Australia, Australia to the Arctic, all our music has evolved from people listening to sounds of the natural world and mimicking it in some way or modelling you do on it. So, and I found that with you know when I started I had the privilege to travel with, I was doing a lot for the BBC Natural History Unit television and radio and meeting people in very remote places sometimes then you know time after time it realized that that was the case you know people once they've got enough to eat and they've got some shelter then you know everybody it's natural to turn to art uh-huh. and music's part of that whether it's cave art and mimicking the sounds of the animals you see on cave walls or from all sorts you know that's where it comes from so it's, it's deeply rooted within our psyche. And, it, and it's a form, you know, we ha- we'd have to do it. It's a form of release. It's, it's very powerful. Now, to make sure we're, uh, we're on the right track. <laughs> At least there'll be a record of, of what we were doing when we disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> I made a radio a drama about that called The Ditch. Uh-huh. about somebody who finds some SD cards from a sound recorder that disappeared in Norfolk and playing back these SD cards reveals this story 
about what happened. It involves EVP and all sorts of interesting things. EVP? Electronic voice phenomenon. There's a whole, whole load of... Uh, Paul Evans wrote it. It's really, really good drama. The Ditch. But I think that, I mean, that was part of my... You know, I was talking to him about it. It's my idea of... You know, I do believe that places have a spirit or sense of place. And uh, I was interested at first to see if you could capture that with sound. And um, interestingly, if you could recreate it. And I think to some extent you can... You know, we, we can go on, we can all go to places like, you know, everybody will know. You can walk into a, a room or a house, whether you're house hunting or you're going somewhere for the first time. People say that, you know, that place had an atmosphere, that yeah. room, had, and it's intangible. But that's exactly the same in the natural world. And what was interesting to me, as I was saying, when I started to travel, whether it's the Wahiro Indians in Venezuela or the Maasai in Kenya, they think exactly the same. There are places to them which are special and they can't actually articulate why or describe it. It's the same in uh, in Ghana on the beach with the nomadic people that follow the sardine trail. There's, there's some places that are special and some places that aren't. And the first CD I made for Touch was, was all about that. It's called uh, Stepping Into the Dark. All these places and tribes that you're mentioning these are people and places that you've been to and recorded mm. is there anywhere that you haven't been <laughs> <laughs> there's loads of places yeah i sometimes choose where i go or I'll sometimes go as part of a production or, or whatever i'm doing i try and make the most of it when i'm there one of the questions that i've asked everyone on the podcast is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now where would it be i'd be doing this <laughs> No, I'm quite. I mean, seriously, I really relish now not having to fly for twelve hours before I start. Well, if you could, if you could time machine me to anywhere, mm-hmm. um, well, this time of year. No, anywhere, anytime. All right. Somewhere you've been, somewhere you haven't been, doesn't matter. If you could break the laws of physics. Um, well, I mean, the forests of Tasmania. I've actually been there, but I, I found that particularly special place. Why so? Well, the trees, you know, you know about trees. Um, the, those swamp gum trees, which are 35 metres tall, it's these massive ancient trees have a certain electricity to them, a magnetism to them, which is, which is remarkable. And also, of course, because they're so huge, they have a fantastic acoustic. So there's something special about that. And going there, everything was new to me. I couldn't identify, not that it matters, but any of the birds that I heard. Uh-huh. Partly because I couldn't see it, see many of them like this morning, but yeah, it was like being on another planet. So I, you know, I'd like to take a walk there. But equally, I like the Tiger Forest. Um, I like the Namib Desert. I quite, quite enjoy a walk there just at sunrise. There is something wonderful about finding yourself in another country and going, I mean, that looks like a blackbird, but right, it's <laughs> yeah. got a different coloured chest, but that's a blackbird. And just sort of being the same, but completely different. Yeah, the fascinations of evolution. Yeah. Well, mentioning earlier the hearing the woodpeckers and then realising that that means we don't have another strand of, of mammalian evolution, just because of the grubs existing 
and needing to be consumed by somebody slightly bigger. <laughs> or the roe deer existing and needing links or humans, someone mm. to come along and consume them. Again, it's back to food and sex again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um, we need to go right here. Okay. This is the way out, actually, from the, after the raft installation. Sure. Because the idea is people felt they'd done a big walk into the deep part of the forest, but in fact there was this road to bust them out in the darkness. So did you go to university? No, I didn't, no. I dropped out. Well, I, was, I was studying from my A-levels, and I, um, I was doing telecommunications for the post office, and then I was in the band, and then I just left and, and took up with the band full-time for a few years. That was 1972... Around then? Uh, a bit later. I was with the band from 72 till probably about 76. Then I went sort of full time with them for five or six years, yeah. Do you ever think that your wildlife recording is sort of the counterpoint to it, the opposite, or is it very much a continuation? I know, it's part of the path, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't been in a band and. I consider I'm doing the similar sort of thing. I'm just interested in working with sound and creatively. And yeah, no, I think it's part of the same path. Totally. Yeah, I don't think there's any disconnect at all. So what made you leave the group? Oh, it's difficult with hindsight. I mean, I think at the time I'd, we had some friends, some of which had fallen by the wayside and or died, basically. Um, and it's you know, in your twenties, that's quite a shock. Yeah. You know, it's well, it's, just, it's a tragedy and it's a terrible shock, and that affected me quite badly. Um, and it started to become. There's a great book by George Melly called Revolt into Style, which basically you have to decide with a career in the music industry. It's brilliantly written that you have one good idea and then spend the rest of your life right. selling it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we went down to some friends of ours. It was soft sell and then you order. We were, we were on uh, top of the pops and we went down to the studio and I stood in there and I thought, Christ, you know, this is the last thing. This is the last place I'd ever want to be. Um, it was really difficult. I had two very good friends, you know, I was in the band with them. I had to sort of let down. But I, I just really, I just couldn't do it. And I was I was driven by what I was interested in. Probably more now. I think about it. I was interested more in what I was hearing outside than the music we were creating in the studio. That's the easy way to answer it, I think. And is that when you started working on the tube? Yes, I came up. I wanted. I thought the new. I need to find out more about film sound and you know the creation and composition of soundtracks and and the one way to do that is work in television. In those, this is you know the early 1980s. There were no courses or anything, and so and, and television companies employed people in those days. <laughs> I, um, you know, and they were interesting, creative, engaging, play, lots of young people in sure. all sorts of careers. You know, from actors, journalists. What uh, are they? <laughs> you know, uh, lots of creative people on the crews and production, and so. Um, yeah, and, and I was lucky in that the Channel 4 had started and they commissioned this music series called The Tube from Time to East Television. So I came up here. I didn't want to work in London. I spent enough time there. I wanted to work somewhere in the north. 
um, came up to Newcastle and just loved it. It was a very different place then, very isolated culturally. And, but the television station was great, so I learned from the ground up there, sort of art and craft of film sound. Everything how? from going out on news crews during the miners' strike at the sharp end to going over to Jamaica with a tube film crew to interview uh, um, Lee Perry, Dennis Bavell, and um, Black Uhuru. Um, it was just astonishing. So were you inadvertently becoming a, uh, a sound documentary maker then, I guess? Or... No, I was becoming a sound recordist. I was. Are they not the same thing? I well, mean, no, I documentaries mean, I mean, are a te- specific. I mean, but I mean, in terms of just the the act of recording something oh, I see. as documentation. Fox poo. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I didn't really think about that. It wasn't of great interest to me. You know, I was, I was collecting a, I was collecting a library of sounds. So I was documenting. I was going to come out here for the morning and do what we've done, and then uh-huh. go back and catalogue it and archive it and. You know, get immersed in all that side of it, but I didn't regard myself as being a documentary sound. You know, I saw myself as a sound recordist who then wants to work creatively with what I've got. And I was interested. I still am. The sounds, of the natural world, and everything in and around it, here and and elsewhere. So, what point did you move from? Uh, well, into the natural world and into wildlife recording in particular. I think the, the big sort of trigger was um, after I'd been at Tyne Tees a few years I saw an advert through the then union for a position as sound recordist at the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds this is 1985 the first one they had and that was a perfect opportunity for me and I'd already got a portfolio of work so I went down and and got, got the job got a two year contract was it competitive? Were there many other people I've looking? I've no idea. I don't know. There was no. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. So I got the position, and uh, and surprisingly, it was at the time when television was starting to want to shed jobs, and so I got a two-year sabbatical, which is incredible. You know, I, I was, I'm sure they're hoping I wouldn't come back. <laughs> so I went down to Bedfordshire, to the flatlands, the badlands of Cambridgeshire, and. The cabbage fields there. Oh, what's that there? There's something fun. Is that? Oh, I just missed it. It, it might was... just be a heron. It's got nice big long legs. Oh, it yeah. was heron, I think. Yeah, it was very broad wings, wasn't it? Aye. Oh, well spotted. Yes, I went down there, and and it was great because everybody was freelance. So we did loads of great films. Went over to Ghana and uh, travelled a lot, wildlife films, and then putting the soundtrack together. I met lots of independent producers um, who were in, you know, my age, in the 20s, late 20s, who were wanting to work for organisations like the BBC Natural History uh-huh. Film Unit in Bristol and went on to do that. And then, actually, at the end of my time at the RSPB, I got some calls from them saying, oh, look, we're doing this series wildlife series on different things and which I went on and worked on and then two of them got the job as producers on a series with David Attenborough called The Life of Birds in the mid-1990s so that they put me onto that and I started working with David then and I've worked with him ever since really yeah, so He's doing quite well now isn't he? He is, yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I mean it's a bit of a disappointment because he started off as a sound recordist of course mm-hmm. with his Zoo Quest series in the 1950s 
but he never really quite made it, unfortunately, as a sound recorder. So he had to find other things, some to other, do. something else to do in television. And he's done okay. He's sort of <laughs> carved a niche for himself. <laughs> I think we can all be pleased with that. <laughs> yeah, so he's a great sound ally. He was a sound recorder. So you, know, sure. you know, he's he's really good. When we, when you work with him now, is he still particularly interested in the sound? Oh yeah. Yeah, he has to be, because I'm stood next to him, telling him <laughs> all about bending his ear. No, he is, he's great. He's really good with sound. He's been a great ally to me over the years. So where did you go with The Secret Life of Birds? How many countries? The how Life many? of Birds? I honestly can't remember. Lots and all over. Uh-huh. Um, the, the one I do, I can't, I mean, and then, I've, you know, um, Life in the Undergrowth, Life of Mammals, uh, Life in Cold Blood... And then I can remember things like Frozen Planet. I can remember this, David, because we went to the South Pole and we went to the North Pole. And with the other series, I went to a lot of places in between. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, I'm afraid. <laughs> good facts, good, good, um, good memory recall. Um, shall we pack up and then yeah, we'll grab let's a go bit more food? So as well as working with Sir David, who was that? Pheasant. Everything's going to... We're, we're going to get halfway through every anecdote and be interrupted <laughs> by some interesting bird in the middle they distance. They I've got some weird sort of ornithological Tourette's since <laughs> start announcing bird names. Apparently <laughs> 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 at random. <laughs> is, there a, is there a favourite job or installation you've done? You spoke about the Raven one, but is there anything that you've particularly enjoyed? Well, yeah, I mean, the installation-wise, yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in the sounds of the oceans from under the surface, so, um, which is a work in progress. Uh, I've been going to Iceland most years recently to try and record undersea there. I've been trying to actually record the song of the largest and loudest animal which has ever lived, which is the blue whale, Uh with Marion Rasmussen, who's a, a scientist in Husavik on the north coast. So I've been going up there with Marianne trying to record blue whales because they are out there. Yeah. Surprisingly, to say <laughs> it's the largest animal that's ever lived, they're really difficult to find. And of course we don't know how many there are, but there, there, are, cert- there are some in the summertime off the northern coast of Iceland and I've got to within 12 miles of one and made a recording, but it was not very good. So, <laughs> but anyway, I've made some pieces, Oceanus and Okeanus, underwater sound journeys about the rhythm and music and songs of the ocean uh-huh. and I'm really loving doing that it is amazing when you well, you use scuba diving or no 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 I use hydrophones oh, okay. underwater microphones I've, I've been diving a bit lately and the noise is sound sound <laughs> I can I can cut, cut this in post every single time <laughs> I say noise I go, sound um <laughs> But no, the, the sound under the water is incredible, We're especially at feeding stations and cleaning stations where you can hear um, the coral especially with all the time. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to describe. It's like pecking and crunching and Rice crispies. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's like breakfast cereal. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's amazing, and you just don't, you don't quite expect it. I don't know, it, there's so... We were talking briefly about this yesterday about natural history documentaries is there's so much music over oh, the top of them now yeah let's not go there yeah but it is the sound of the natural world as, as we've spent our day out this morning and it, 
it deserves its sort of place in the sun, if you will. Yeah. I think those that have tuned into it don't stop listening to it. But to get people just to sort of take out their earbuds is, is getting harder and harder. Yeah, tune in. And it's just... It's life-enhancing. It's all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, you discover all the problems and challenges of noise pollution and the challenges that we face and the rest of the natural world face in noise pollution, but also you engage with your own environment. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I think that's the first step, because we live in such poor acoustic environments at home and at work and in the studio and wherever we are, in the street, that we use these methods to shut out those sounds. But when you start to listen, you inform yourself. So you become... You can educate yourself, so you're in a position to challenge the mm-hmm. status quo, to, to go into a restaurant and say, can you turn that music off, or can you turn this down, or do, do we have to listen to this? Or, you know, you can complain about the design of buildings, and architects can be better informed and ed- more educated about the acoustic design of places. Have you ever been asked to comment on architectural plans as someone who's... No, never, no. It's just a really fifth or sixth thought for architects. Uh, they should hang their heads in shame. You well, know, it's, with it's the same in, it, in TV and film production. It is People are looking at the monitors all the time going, well, their hair looks good, the costume looks fine, we can't see anything else wrong with it, the boom's not in shot, and visually everything's fine. But the number of times I've seen producers sitting at in video village without a set of cans on listening in yeah it's it's perverse yeah i mean it's it's at least 50 percent of the value of any any film or tv is is the is the audio recording that accompanies it one reminded me of a story that i'm talking about monitors i did a documentary years ago about art in the community where people could apply for famous well-known paintings and have them hung in the living room with security for a period of time uh-huh. and we had um, I think it was a Matisse or something like that, I can't remember what it was um, in this house in Middlesbrough and I remember and it was on somebody's wall and uh-huh. there was security either side of it and it was, you know, it, was a, it was a bit of a farce the whole thing but I remember everybody looking at the monitor this HD monitor and saying look at that, look at the colours, look at the texture and the painting was on was the right wall there. next to the camera in front of the camera, and people looked at it on the monitors and said, look at that, it's amazing. Uh, it's, without going off onto a diatribe about how yeah. long people spend on social media, <laughs> it, it, it's just been an absolute blessing to get up at three o'clock in the morning and come out into a forest. Um, all we saw were, were trucks taking timber away and not another living soul. Yeah, I was surprised at that, actually, but you can see how this has got a bit more manicured. Yeah, yeah but once you're here... And you need that half hour, you know, we walked out there in the darkness, yeah. sort of in a line, set up quietly, and then just sat. And it just happened all around us. You know, the light came up, the birds appeared out of nowhere, yeah. which were always there, even when they were quiet. And other than the couple in the car park dogging, it was absolutely <laughs> tranquil. <laughs> Emotionless. So, yeah. as, as well as making wildlife recordings, well as well as making wildlife recordings you incorporate those into productions with other uh, musicians and the like you were saying yeah it's interesting i mean there's been a real development in that in the what people call field recording to use them creatively so I've, in recent times i've had more and more requests for tracks 
on albums <clears throat> or to incorporate them or to do remixes working with my material or and people that are well informed I mean I've, I've met Bjork a few times up in Iceland she mm -hmm. spent a lot of time recording there and she's very tuned to that landscape and um, she spends a lot of time in New York which is she's Icelandic and, and she's got a very good ear for sounds and so she's occasionally use my tracks I've got four tracks of mine on her Utopia album just sounds that were special to her because they're recorded in Iceland uh -huh. you know wind across ice and glacial sounds and pressure ridges sort of shifting and cracking so sounds which I think have an inherent musicality to mm -hmm. them as well sounds of the natural world but that's something that that chimes with her as well I mean she's as we were just walking up to this this bench there was a a thrush was it? No, Missile thrush. Missile thrush, that was it. And you were saying how it's got a melancholic air to it. Mm. And it is that thing you do. I guess it's a form of projection, but you do place an emotional response onto the songs of these creatures, and even onto the sound <clears> of the wind going through the trees. There yeah. Is, oh, we can't help it. It's anthropomorphism, I guess. Yeah, we can't help it. But I mean, we're. It's. I think it's in our DNA. We, we've. You know, we've evolved. We're all good listeners, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. We're all good listeners. We are the people that evolved 40,000 years ago. We all lived in caves. We all lived in caves in Lascaux or New Mexico mm -hmm. or Asia, Australia. You know, around the planet, we lived in caves and we left our mark on those caves. And when we were asleep, or when our ancestors were asleep at night in those caves, and a saber toothed tiger or a clan of spotted hyenas came into that cave looking for a meal. Mm -hmm. We've evolved from the people that heard those animals' padded approach into the cave, woke up and escaped out of the back. The people that, well, did, the, the <laughs> people that didn't wake up aren't around today to sure. come and enjoy the sounds of Kielder Forest. So we're all good listeners. We're listening even when we're asleep mm -hmm. and we don't have earlids. And so we, we are tuned, and we don't. We still have that fight or flight response, which triggers our blood pressure. Have you ever it, been in one of those isolation chambers? You know, this yes, I have. Yeah. How was that for you? It was, it was interesting and terrifying and horrible. Um, <laughs> so it was. It's a really bad form of sensory deprivation uh -huh. from a sound point of view. I mean, I started to hallucinate. It was one of the flotation tank. Yeah, yeah. So it was in a strongly saline solution. For a start, you're in what, like a giant womb, mm -hmm. so then it closes, coffin-like, and then you're in the darkness, this body temperature saline liquid. So you float on the surface, like the Dead Sea. And um, you know, I imagined I was spinning around and going down a river. But then I had auditory hallucinations as well. I found it. Um, it wasn't as bad as an anechoic chamber, which I couldn't stand mm -hmm. for more than a minute, but I did find it really quite disorienting. Anechoic chambers are the worst because there's no reflection in there. Sure. And I was in one at um, UCL and I've been in another one in Manchester on my own. They closed the door and turned the lights out and I lasted less than a minute. Because you, what happens is, uh, I mean, John Cage experienced this. You, your body seeks a reference. It desperately seeks a reference, so it internalizes everything. So you start to hear the blood pumping through your brain, uh -huh. and your whatever it is, your nervous system, sort of twitching and tingling and sparking. It's and we think that's a survival mechanism. Well, I don't because it's such a weird place to be. Uh -huh. It's I think you. 
you're probably going to panic, you know, because you there is no sound unless sure. you make a sound. And so I found I found it really disorienting. So I was there a minute, and I was. The thing is, you can't see the door either because it's like the TARDIS inside. Uh-huh. It's got all it look, look like cheese cones sticking sure, sure. out, which absorb all the reflections. It's really bad. Um, so on the train up yesterday, I was listening to Weather Report. Oh yeah, which was. It was wonderful. It, it blocked out the noise of the woman eating the crisps <laughs> next to me, and as she tucked into her third boost bar, oh God, and I could literally feel her swelling. Um, <laughs> I was, I was, I was listening to your weather report, which is fantastic. Um, what, what is the animal at the beginning? You know, a lion. Is that a lion? Yeah, territorial roar of a male lion at sunrise. And how how much of that record is you? tinkering, recording, overlaying, dubbing, mixing? Well, it's quite a bit of that because the time lapses, the idea behind Weather Report, having experienced long time in those locations over years, months, in each location, I um, decided on, on trying to create something that I thought represented the soundscape of those places, but something that would fit onto a CD, and I was interested in the comparison between the different way time, I thought, behaves. So, Olo Lolo, the first track, mm-hmm. which is named after the Maasai name for the ridge uh, in the Maasai Mara, above the River Mara, is 12 hours, dawn till dusk in the Maasai Mara. And it's like a soap opera, because there's cannibalism, death, sex, everything in 12 hours. Mm-hmm because the intensity, it's on the equator the intensity of animal behaviour on a regular basis so I had to compress the events of 12 hours into 18 minutes the next track, the Lapeg is about a a glen in the highlands um, Glen Afric where I, I spent a lot of time recording and that's the time of the end of summer and into winter so it's three months period in 18 minutes and then the last track is Vatna Jokul, which is the glacier in Iceland, the famous glacier in the south, which carves into the, off the south coast. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, I was working with a glaciologist. I was on a film crew, and, and we were on the summit, Kverkfell, of, of the glacier. And we spent the night in this hut, and we came out, and she picked up... It's June, but it snowed a bit. She picked up this snow and scrunched it up, into a piece of ice and dropped it and she always rem- I'll never forget she said this piece of ice has started a journey today from the summit of the glacier down to the coast and she says we're driving down to hop this afternoon on snowmobiles and a Land Rover and it'll take us sort of two two and a half hours to make that journey she says this piece of ice is starting the same journey today and it's going to take it 10,000 years to get down to the coast so I thought about that. I thought what I need to do is compress the journey of that piece of ice into 18, 18 minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Facetiously, yeah. So that's what I did. So, and that's the idea of Weather Report. So, um, I mean, you you refer to yourself as a composer. I mean, I, I, I think that's the most ambitious composition anyone <laughs> could ever do. Um, do, you, do you feel... I mean, this is. I guess this is the interesting side of the two things that you do. One of them is recording the natural world, and one of them is repositioning and reorientating the natural world. Having watched you out there listening this morning, you've got absolute respect for the place. Do you then therefore feel 
bad when you culturally reappropriate? I guess I don't know. I could do, yeah, and I, and sometimes I'm very careful about because there's so many outcomes from recordings that, um, and I try to retain my integrity, integrity, and the integrity of the place and the animals in in any way that I represent it. But of course. It's like anything, it's condensed, it has to be, uh, and it's edited, it's very subjective, it's my decision. Mm-hmm. You know, we could all start with these recordings I've made today, I mean, I'm going to pass them on to you for your podcast, and you might edit them in an entirely different way, which is fine, you know, I'm trying not to be, I'm not precious about that. Sure. But there's just many and various ways of doing it, it's simply my interpretation. And what I try and do, what's important to me is, try and convey something of the experience that we've had this morning out here on location and represent that honestly in in the piece. Well, I guess when this goes to the editor, we'll try and do the same. We'll try well, and exactly, do, yeah. start from us getting the kit out of the car at four o'clock in the morning and take us through to, to now. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's that, you're right, actually. It's, it's that, it's the process as part of it. I can't disconnect myself from any of that. Well, as, as I said yesterday, and I've said to many other people in the past, is that m- one of my ethos in terms of the work that I do is that the process is always far more important than the product. Um, there's no point in making anything if you didn't enjoy and or learn something through the act of making. Yeah, absolutely, David, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, it's vital, but there's no point coming out, you know, otherwise. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of tales that you've had <laughs> and that's off the record as well as on the record and I dread to think how many minutes hours I've recorded so far <laughs> so I don't want to make this too hard for my editor yeah, so edit let's um I'll try and start to wrap it up um there are three questions we ask everybody on who comes on the podcast right. I say we I me yeah. me with the microphone uh one of which you've already answered about where you'd like to go for a walk that was a hard question or oh, they get harder Oh, no. um, the other one is uh, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I think the golden frog in Panama, because I was there, almost there, at its demise. I worked on a series called Life in Cold Blood, and we um, went to Panama to film the golden frog, which was. I think it was the national symbol of Panama, mm-hmm. but its habitat had been destroyed by deforestation and the building of properties on this slope. The landscape had been disturbed, the watercourse was polluted, and its last remaining sanctuary habitat had been wiped out. Mm-hmm. So this animal, the ones that we filmed, I think, were the last animals in the wild. It was then the few were taken into captivity, but it's still not around in the wild. So I think there is some hope for it. I I, I imagine there are still captive animals, so it's not truly extinct in that sense. But whether or not we can breed it, my ambition is to be. Yeah, even though you know I'll probably never see them again, but that doesn't matter. You know that I felt desperately sorry to see how that place had been, its habitat had been wiped out. Mm -hmm. So I I would like to see that be safely uh, restored back into the landscape Great. or know that it was there a bit like the lynx up here you, know, you never see them, never hear them but you know they're, there. Know they're there um, the final question the final official question is what well, I've been asking people is should we colonise the moon but I'm a bit bored of that question 
So <laughs> should we colonise space? Should we find other ecosystems, environments, if they exist? Well, not this afternoon, <laughs> but I've got other things to do. But um, I don't know if I'm fit to answer that question. I mean, having seen what we've done to this planet, mm-hmm. it, it's difficult to imagine we can go off and do that somewhere else for the sake of our survival. Sure. You know, I mean, if we disappeared from this planet, nothing would very change very much. You know, uh, in in the first few decades, habitats would recover. You know, have you made any recordings at rewilded places? No, but I'm interested in that because it's quite a new thing, isn't yeah. it? Um, so yeah, like the, the farms. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. I mean, I've I've been to places that have been recolonized mm-hmm. by. Birds that have recovered um, from destruction. I've got an invitation next year to go down to Tasmania, where which was the southern, south, western forests were destroyed by massive fires, mm-hmm. and uh, and the government are interested in the recolonising recolonisation of that area and what might happen. So I'd be interested to help to start document that. But going back to the other question, I really don't know. If, I don't think we're worth it, you know, going off doing, you know, damage somewhere else. Sure. We might as well just, you know, disappear. Um, do you have any other exciting projects lined up? What's next? Yeah, loads. I mean, I'm freelance, a bit like you. Have things. Um, well, I'm going to Iceland on Monday with... with Is that the Blue Whale Hunt? Oh, no, that's... No, the, no, the, no, the, yeah, it's a, a new uh, series. Um... I've got an interesting project in Hackney at the Earth Centre, which I'm doing later in May, okay. where they've got this new Swish L-acoustic surround system, and, and the Serpentine have commissioned me to make a piece for that. So I've decided, actually inspired by some places here, to follow, make a sound piece that follows the salmon run from Arctic Greenland to my favourite river in Northumberland, which is the Coquit, to the headwaters, where I went a few years ago. Something, actually another place we could have gone, just absolutely blew me away. It's the first time in my life I've been to the source of a river. And I just went for a walk with Maggie. Mm-hmm. We had a border collie at the time, Jess. And we spent the day following the coquet up to the source. So where the river sort of disappears and then up onto this hill, coquet's head. And found this place where water was just seeping out of the sphagnum moss. Mm-hmm. It was the source of the river which it was just a magical thing just to see fresh, clear water springing out of the ground. And then 100 metres later, this tiny rivulet. And then 50 miles later, it's a river flowing into the North Sea at um, Amble. It was just magical. fantastic. Yeah. Are you finding that your life is informing more of your work as you go on in terms of your day-to-day existence, the things you come across and how you incorporate them? Yeah, exactly, because I'm, I'm that age, I'm 65, so the only luxury, I mean, I'm still you know, freelance, but the luxury I have is saying no. So now I do what I want to do, you know, more or less, uh-huh. and, and have the pleasure of, of you know, choosing where I go and what I decide to do and what I record. And to a certain extent, then, how I work with it, with my installations, if I'm not... It's not a commission for something else. So I really like that. You know, it's, I've never really been in that position until now. Um, just to finish on, if you could relay the anecdote that you just shared on the way here about Interstellar Planet video game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do... I think I was saying I do work for 
video games, which I don't play myself, and they, it's really interesting because the production values are very high. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably the highest values work that I do. It's also very lucrative in that respect, and I've got great respect for the people who do it. So they, quite often the games will have five sound designers working with VR sound and high definition audio. And I got asked by one company to make create the sound of um, a, a, another planet or another system way outside our galaxy. And I'd actually just been to Borneo, and so I sent them some recordings of the forests of Borneo, and they're very critical, which is good. Mm-hmm. I got a message back saying, we don't like any of these. They <laughs> sound really electronic and a bit rubbish. You know, they're quite rare sounds of Borneo birds and animals, sure. which that doesn't matter to them, didn't, you know, so it didn't matter for the project. So we said, we're looking for something strange, but a bit more mellow. So it was this time of year, sort of April, May, so I went into my suburban back garden in Newcastle and recorded blackbirds, robins and song thrushes and sent those over. They absolutely love them. <laughs> so this galaxy, somewhere in another place... Uh, the soundtrack is the, the soundtrack of the birds in my suburban <laughs> garden in Newcastle. That's brilliant. There's an interstellar parallel evolution of robins elsewhere going on. Um, if people want to d- discover more about your work, what's the best place to go to? You've got a website, which is a good starting point, yeah, I guess. Yeah, uh, a touch website, chriswatson.net. And there's a newsletter that Mike Harding, my publisher, puts up, which you can subscribe to, which gets regularly updated by Mike. Super. And if there was one recording that people should listen to of yours? I've got a fantastic recording of a cheetah purring, which is very, very close up, uh-huh. which is one of the most overwhelming but seductive recordings I've made. So it's one of my favourites still. That sounds incredible. I'd love to hear that. I guess this, this answers the question. A friend of mine said, he said when I said I was doing a podcast called Trees a Crowd, he said, well, that's a rubbish title. And I said, well, we couldn't come up with a better one at the time. <laughs> and he said, well, you should have called it something fun like um, if a podcast recorded in a forest, can anyone hear it scream? <laughs> um, and I think we've probably answered that today. I've got a recording of a branch snapping in a forest when there was nobody there because I was 350 metres away and it did make a sound. And on that crunch <laughs> on that bombshell, <laughs> on that bombshell. That Chris crack. thank you so very much that was absolutely fantastic it's been I've a heard, pleasure thanks for coming out David I've had one of the best mornings of my life for a very long time so, so. have I <laughs> no, seriously it's great it's just gorgeous being out here listening super well I hope everyone who tunes in can share our glee And thus ends the final instalment of my time with Chris Watson. I cannot thank him enough for his kindness and for sharing his contagious passion for the sounds of this planet with me. Please do share these interviews with friends. I'd love it for more people to reconsider the importance of our ears in this busy world. And perhaps listening to Chris on this podcast is the very catalyst for that. We've another guest lined up to bring you in a fortnight's time. There's further information on all our guests on the website at treesacrowd.fm. But until then... Thank you so very much for listening. Bye bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.